Totally. And government meaning government that is not governed by the people, meaning it's a government of people that are doing their own thing. They don't listen to the people. They don't want to listen to the people and they don't care what you have to say because they know best. And you just need to shut up and just accept that they know best. And they all sit there and they discuss these things. All of them, every single one of them with their faces shamelessly. How do we silence all these people? Counting process, they know what they're seeing and they don't misinterpret things uh, to create nefarious rumors. Uh, so we are also now looking forward to proposing legislative changes to help address a lot of the sources of the misinformation uh, and in that way ensure that we don't see any of this type of post-election uh, challenges uh, or shenanigans as I've uh, percolate or expand in the years ahead. Thanks. Thanks. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. Did you win a, you win a, a bet by, by including the word shenanigans in your remark? No. It's like become this controversial thing. They don't like that. Okay. Hey, I appreciate your your thoughts. I look forward to sharing really a few concrete examples of things that we did in Ohio, mostly leading up to the election, to combat and to inoculate against uh, disinformation and misinformation. Uh, I may use those two terms interchangeably, but we understand obviously that they mean uh, different things. Um, and uh, but also want to start off by by, by saying that um, the the result of our work showed uh, in that we had like Jocelyn Benson, like like Secretary Benson mentioned, uh, the most successful election that, that we'd ever had in Ohio, it, as she said, uh, Michigan had, and it's not hyperbole to say, at least as it relates to what we saw in Ohio, that it was the most successful election we've ever seen. And in the midst of the most challenging circumstances we've ever seen, again, not hyperbole there. In fact, uh, our friend, I don't know if he's with us today, but our friend Trey Grayson, former uh, Kentucky Secretary of State, wrote a column for The Economist where he talked about the 2020 election as the stress test, kind of the worst case scenario if you were to sit down and come up with all of the most challenging things you could throw at elections administrators. It would look a lot like what we saw in 2020. But in the midst of that, uh, in Ohio, we had record participation, 6 million votes, cast, almost 6 million votes cast, uh, record participation as a, as a rate, a, per, a percentage uh, with close to 75%. But at the same time, we had record return rate on people returning their absentee ballots. I believe it was 94%. We've never seen a number that high. Uh, we had record low in ballot rejection because of uh, voter mistakes. That's normally hovers around 1%. We had that number cut down to 0.42%. Uh, record numbers of poll workers with 56,000 Ohioans out to work the polls uh, on election day and record early and absentee voting with 59% of our votes cast 
before the polls ever opened uh, on, on election day. Normally that number in Ohio hovers in the 30, 35% range. Uh, and so uh, really re remarkable things. But again, combating disinformation uh, was a big part of that because one of the most important jobs that we have as secretaries of state is making sure that the voters of our state can go confidently to the polls, whether they do early voting or voting absentee or, or whether they go to the polls on election day, they should be able to go confidently to the polls knowing uh, that their voice will be heard uh, in a fair and, and an honest contest. And so that's why uh, I, I really tackled disinformation as something that was a top priority for me from the beginning of my administration two years ago. Um, some of you may have seen, I, I, I was quoted in, in a national newspaper a couple of months ago uh, talking about the real mythology that exists around elections administration. It is fertile ground for creative imaginations. I don't need to tell you all that, but people make up a lot of things that just aren't so about elections administration. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but um, it's human nature, I suppose. And it's, so it's something that, that we all need to accept as a challenge as secretaries of state to combat that kind of mythology uh, with accurate information. And where it, of course, is even more pernicious is when it's intentional. That's that disinformation. And so to start, when I started working on this issue, both for my staff, uh, our boards of elections, and for our partners throughout the state, the other stakeholders, I started by defining the issue. Uh, for, first of all, misinformation and disinformation, one uh, being intentional uh, and, and the other being just sort of uh, urban legend and, and, and rumor, uh, but also just sort of understanding what these are, because those terminologies that we use can be a little arcane for some people. Uh, this is what, in a previous generation, we would have just called propaganda. And, and from my time in the military, uh, we had words for it like information operations or psychological warfare. Uh, but propaganda is a pretty accessible word that most people understand. It's intentional spread of false information with a tactical purpose, a, a specific purpose in mind. And in this case, the purpose is generally to confuse and disorient voters and to get them to select to choose to disenfranchise themselves uh, by not participating. And so that's something that's ugly and, and can never be tolerated in any, uh, in any of, its, uh, of its forms. And so I want to talk about two examples. So that was one uh, section of this call. And as you saw, Raffensburg was on that call. So was Katie Hobbs. And as you see, there's 30 Secretary of State. Currently, as we speak, they are colluding in pushing forward, right? Pushing forward to hold certain individuals accountable for making their jobs difficult. Now, <laughs> obviously, we have this information. Obviously, this video helps us more but you know this is them talking in 2021 ah it's so interesting how things will happen but in order to understand what a trader is like one must understand traders and what better way than to showcase just how intricate the character in uh, the Bible, Judas is. But before we get to that, I want to draw your attention. I wrote a very, very nice article years ago on Peter Strzok. 
And what I mentioned in that article, aside from the fact that he was raised in Iran and it went viral and everyone was like, oh my God, great job. And it's like, dude, it's not a fucking secret. It's just that people are too dumb, right? To put one and one together. In that article that you will find, I also pointed out that Peter Strzok's father worked with Stanley Ann Dunham. Who is Stanley Ann Dunham? That's Barack Hussein Obama's mom. Here's a little clip about her. We are back and now to our occasional series of reports on the presidential candidates' families, looking tonight at Senator Barack Obama, who's made his life story and his upbringing a part of his campaign. He's written and spoken openly about the mother who raised him, the father who left him, both of whom, of course, left behind a big impression. NBC's Lee Cowan has our report tonight on family ties. I have not had uh, my parents now for uh, over a decade. The beginning of Barack Obama's improbable journey began with an improbable union. An African man named Barack and a white Kenzin named Stanley Ann wed at the dawn of the 60s when interracial marriages were still illegal in many places. It lasted, though, just three short years. See, that's so weird because we've talked about this before. She got pregnant, right? When she went to Hawaii, right? Apparently, right? But she got pregnant, had the baby, and returned to her parents in less than 12 months with a full-grown baby. It was just really bizarre how they just, well, well, you know, this baby just came out walking. It was two years old when it arrived in Washington after her just being gone for a year. So weird. Hawaii. You have another languages division there, too. So... It, it makes absolutely no sense. Traders, traders, traders. But before we get into that, trader, 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 I want to um, show you guys a film. Someone you might not even know. I'll try to get her picture up. Let me share a film. Where is it? I know I have it here. It is here somewhere. What? Stop it. Give me a second, you guys. I can't believe this is happening. It's not in here. Give me a sec. I know it's in my history because I had the video up earlier today so that I can show it to you. There it is. There it is. And stopped right where I wanted to. All right. So... This is a movie from 2018. It is quite a fascinating movie. But the fascinating part of it are the characters. Let's go. So the movie is called, well, just watch the movie. Hello, sweetheart. Here's my coat. Here's my. So that's the most interesting part of the movie. I'm going to try to get onto Rumble and see the chat. Maybe someone can tell me why it's the most interesting part in the movie. I'm going to wait and see if anyone knows why it's so fascinating, that portion of it. Just that exact portion of it. Okay. Anybody? Right there. No? Okay, let, let me help you. See, that actress is important. That's the actress. So awesome. You see the actress now? That's the actress, right? 
See the actress now? That's the actress. <sighs> so she is Agnes Nixon's, uh, Nixon's uh, daughter. Um, just if anybody's wondering where Maggie Nix is. Oh. So let's just, just play a little bit more of that. Here we go. Hello, sweetheart. Here's my coat. And you see this hair hat? I want you to guard it with your life. It was a gift from my mother. Yes, Mr. Skidow. Yeah, that's for you. It was a gift from my mother. Yes, Mr. Yeah, so this is she. I just thought I would just point it out. That's all. All right. So that was an interesting film. Super interesting. And uh, <clears throat> the reason I'm showing this is because we're going to go back to Stanley and Dunham for a second. <laughs> just watch the rest of who she is and stuff. Obviously, they're going to leave out the part that she's worked for the CIA. She was in Iran when we overthrew their government and installed the Khamenei's. Uh, she also helped destroy Upper Volta with Peter Strzok's dad and uh, create what we know today as uh, Burkina Faso. So weird. So freaking bizarre. And, <laughs> oh, and um, from what I know is she actually never had kids, but that's a different story. Okay, that's a whole other rabbit hole. But let's just continue because this all totally makes sense. And their lives not much longer. Obama's father was killed in a car accident in Africa in 1982. His mother, stricken with ovarian cancer, died in 1995. It would be wonderful to have the counsel of, uh, of parents. It would be wonderful to be able to admit mistakes or just get some encouragement. Instead, he has to rely on what they left him, and each left him something very different. Obama's father abandoned him at age two. He left first for Harvard and eventually returned to his native Kenya. To this day, the elder Barack remains an example for the younger, but of how not to live. I watch myself for some of the things that I know ended up hurting him. Uh, too much pride. Uh, an inability to listen to other people. Th th those are things that I guard against in myself. But in that fatherless void stood his young mother, who remained more influential than anyone. For example, when Brian Williams showed him on the cover of Newsweek for the very first time, the senator's reaction was not about himself. You know, it makes me think of my mom and, uh, and the fact that, you know, she's not around. We're all Obamacans. Obama's half-sister, Maya, remembers that there was little traditional about their mother. I think it is interesting to look at the patterns, how our mother started in the Midwest and ended up in Indonesia, and how he uh, started in Hawaii, in essence, and, and returned to the Midwest. Remember that? And friends who knew <laughs> so Stanley Ann early school. see her in him so, all the time. The passion he brings, I think, uh, a lot of that. See, what's weird is how did she return to the Midwest when she was from fucking Washington? See, they can't even get their story straight. They'd said so many lies that they don't even know how to keep that stuff straight, right? Oh, look, we're friends with her mom. No, you're not. Her mom was a spook. You didn't know her. Ask me. It's so hard to have friends. 
so hard because you have to remember what you told them so freaking hard. The only time that you actually have friends is when you don't tell them shit you do. That's the only time you have friends in that line of work. So again, this is so such BS, such BS. It is because if her real story is, is that she left Washington state, went down to Hawaii and then appeared a year later with, you know, her, what was he? 11 month old baby. Well, when, when did she put him in there? She never went to Kenya. She was supposedly in school. No, no. She's agency. The whole story is a plant and they just stuck with whatever she mostly repeated. That's how you create a backstory. Let's not forget Valerie Jared and his daddy in, in, in place, J-O-B, right? We can't forget those. You know, by the way, speaking of emails, because I'm going to be dropping an article uh, very soon. But speaking of emails, you know, we, I did tell you guys that the Obama emails are going to be insane. If you thought Hillary Clinton and Hunter Biden is, dang, wait till you get to the actual Obama emails. You know when the funny Obama emails are? Because they thought they were sneaky, right? They were so, so sneaky. So sneaky. When those come. See, Durham is a smart man. Very methodical. And boy, does he have his work cut out for him. This is so huge, right? Everyone's like, oh my gosh, Sussman. Sussman is one linchpin to one operation arm. Because, you know, while everyone talked about Peter Strzok, oh my God, Peter Strzok, he was like doing Hillary's emails and he was on Mueller's team and, and, and. Well, what if I told you that the guy that was on Hillary's emails, right? bounced right before Trump got into office and then created this company that fucked the Maricopa audit. And once he fucked it up, fucked it up by putting out misinformation, bribing and blackmailing people within Arizona. And then he bounced back <sighs> working for the government again. I mean, this should be really easy for Durham. Super easy, super duper easy. So, you know, Sussman is one satellite. Like, it's kind of like, you know, when people, because if you take a 40,000 foot view, it's the same freaking gang of people. It all leads back to just, the, you know, 20 people. You know, Huma's there, but Huma was actually, she went to Harvard, right? Right? So Valerie Jarrett. But who paid for Harvard? <laughs> Muslim Brotherhood. See, you're going to see how God works in insane ways today because we're going to talk about religious prosecution. I hear so many people, this is a spiritual battle. Yeah. Well, explain it to me. Like I'm a four-year-old. Where do you see it? Well, it's good versus evil. Break it down. Point to me to something because you speak out of knowledge. This is a spiritual war. This is a spiritual war. You're right. It is. But can you point it out? Show me where it's a spiritual war because all you do is sound kooky. So tell me, where is this spiritual war? Ah, I see. You're just repeating something you know is true, but don't know. So you're actually talking without knowing what you're talking about. So obviously, I already gave you a little bit of inclinage, but let me show you how things boomerang when you do evil things. 
And again, good versus evil, spiritual battle. Everybody says that, yet nobody has streamlined it to make it sense. It's like, you know, you're talking to your friends that are kind of on the fence. You're like, yeah, man, this is a spiritual battle. And they're like, yeah, really? Okay, yeah, they're evil people. Yeah, they do all the satanic stuff. Yeah, okay, so pieces of crap right? They're organizing against us. They're raping. They're killing children. Okay. Is that the evil? No, it's not. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. Those are the byproducts of the actual war. That's how big and ugly the war is. The killing children, raping children, doing all these things is the byproduct of the actual war. And unfortunately, we have a bunch of people that are telling you, oh, man, these people are so evil. Okay. Yeah. But see, so all these evil people are running the world. Yes. Well, what's the point? Because they're evil and they like that stuff. And it's like, what, did they just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be evil? Uh, you know, is it, uh, it whoa, 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 explain it to me. And then they're like, no, they're just evil. And, and then you, you lose people that don't feel it right? Because this is about emotion, right? And while people say they want it to be torture for us, yeah, yeah, they do, right? Yeah. You're a slave. They want to whip you. They want you to work for them. They want this. They want that. Nee, 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 nee. They want control. But the thing is, how do they keep you in control and how do they eradicate any good within them? Okay. And see, here's the thing. <laughs> You're going to see it develop. So let's continue with Stanley Ann Dunham. Something he learned from his mother's knee. Lessons that stuck when he needed them most. When I was writing that speech on race. I'm the son of a black man from Kenya and a white woman from Kansas. Her memory loomed over me. Is this, is this something that she would trust? A reality check he still seeks. You know, at night, if I'm saying a prayer... Uh, you know, I send up maybe a, a little message to my mother, and hopefully she's somewhere and can hear it. A quiet but heartfelt whisper over the noise of a presidential campaign. Lee Callen, NBC News, New York. It must suck to know that the person that gave you cover all those years, the person that was supposedly your mom, that took the place of your mom on paper and for pictures, you eradicated her before your uprise. Must really suck to be a piece of shit. Now, next. Uh, one thing that you probably heard about is that, you know, we're sending another trillion dollars <laughs> uh, to Ukraine, of course, right? But then we have our annexed um, Puerto Rico, right? Because they're, no, they're not annexed. What are they called? What do we call the, the, the places that we annex as a, as a nation? We call them territories, right? So the territory of Puerto Rico is not allowed to get pensions and uh, disability benefits. They don't get anything. And a lot of people are like, well, they don't pay taxes. Actually, they do. They just don't pay the taxes you do. It's kind of different. But, okay, so the annexed place doesn't get taxes. But do you guys remember a report back in 2012 that they eradicated uh, where Obama's mother-in-law, apparently, was getting a pension and they said it was fake news. See, fake news has been around for a while, that term. 
just so you know, for those of you that didn't know. So let's get into it. A viewer has a question for our Verify team about former President Barack Obama's mother-in-law. Paul Broussard says he heard that Marion Robinson is getting $250,000 a year in pension for caring for the Obama children while they were in the White House. Is that true? Our fact checkers set out to find the answer. And here's what they found. This story originated on this website called the Bostontribune.com. Sounds legit. It is not. It is a site notorious for posting fake news stories. And by the way, if you try to go to that link right now, it does not work. The story claimed Obama's mother-in-law qualified for a pension under what is called the Civil Service Retirement Act. Two problems with that claim. The act only applies to federal workers who started before 1987. Also, Obama's mother-in-law, she was never paid by the government while she was at the White House. So we can verify for Mr. Broussard this story is a big false is there something you want our Verify team to look into? Send an email to verify at khou.com. Oh, she was never paid while she was at the White House. Ah, ah, while she was at the White House. See, see, while she was at the White House. While she was at the, never paid by the government while she was at the White House. I repeat, never paid by the government while she was in the White House. While she was in the White House. Oh, Sounds a little bit, um, <laughs> I don't know, not right. See, I'm going to tell you something. This is so huge. You know, sometimes I sit down and I'm just like overwhelmed. Today has been an extraordinary long day. It is stretched like nobody's business. Like I remember at four o'clock, I was like, are you kidding? Did we like zap into freaking Friday, four o'clock, because this is not happening. There was a problem within just a few minutes at 4 p.m. Eastern. It happened the first time at about 2 something p.m. And then again at 4 p.m., something happened. And I was like, whoa, times are shifting. And why? I actually sat there and thought for a second. And I had a really long thought, like laid down, pet my cat, kind of, I need to just turn off for a second. And that thought gave me so much anxiety. Anxiety. Like when I say anxiety, anxiety right now, you have primaries coming up that are all fucking rigged. You have people that are surrounding our president's detail and himself, giving them false Information, bad information. <laughs> so number one, why President Trump is important is because he represents what they stole from us. So there is no, uh, no option of someone else getting up there. And so there he is surrounded by those closest. Huh, Dan Scavino, start kicking some teeth in, please. Uh, those closest that have shown him who they were during his 2016 campaign, have shown him who they are during his tenure. And yet there he is, you know, and I'm not talking about Alex Jones and Ali. I told you in 2020 that Alex Jones, 2021 January and in December, that Alex Jones and Ali Akbar will be the reason that our president will be wrapped up in this shit. 
right, will be the reason. And I didn't just say it on a whim. People think, uh, you have a thing. No, I actually feel for Alex Jones. I feel bad for him. I completely feel bad for him. One million percent, I feel bad for him. I feel so bad for him. Because after he separated with his wife, he got that, that second wife that was a, literally a prostitute slash sli- stripper on Backpage.com. No joke. And I'm not trying to knock on her. I'm just saying, hello, honeypot, hey, who's everywhere, by the way. And I'm like, this is why I always, I would have made a better handler for him. Shit. Like, what is this? This is the bad handler. I always joked about it saying I would have been a great handler. And so, you know, we see now that, you know, those are nothing. The the Akbars and the Jones, they're all used to just tie back to the president. And the problem that we have is that key people within the Trump administration or those that are orbiting him right now have been ensnared in this. Right. And what they're doing is trying to cover up because they fucked up. And the thing is, we don't need you to cover up. We need you to own up because you were dumb. Everybody gets dumb at some point. You're not, you know, some flawless human being that makes no mistakes. You've made mistakes. And the more you try to push back and cover up, on these mistakes, and I'm not talking about Alex Jones or Akbar, right? Akbar is a bottom feeder, okay? He was a prostitute for the Republican Party, right? So that he can get blackmail, right? They usually have people that that run all these prostitutes, high-class call girls, low-class boy call boys, call boys, right? Okay, let's just, you know, keep that straight, all right? All right. We're talking about key people that are actively and were actively within his administration and still keeping themselves relevant right now. And so the problem that we have is, is that a lot of people fucked up. They really did. They, they are human, first of all. And they cannot be objective. Human beings lack the ability to be objective. Right. And the reason is, is because almost everything they see and everything they interact with is subjective. How do they feel? What is the knowledge that they have? Remember, the devil's advocate in actually trusting your gut is your damn logic. Right. So people go through the logic behind things. They, 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 they think that this is it. This is it. You know, and they make mistakes. And I'm talking big names. I've had conversations with journalists that I actually trust because I was actually talking about Maggie Haberman today. It's quite interesting uh, to revisit that. But um, she'll be coming into focus very soon. Anyway, so we were talking and they were like, hey, what do you what is X, Y, Z doing? And I was like, yeah, I know. Right. But, But Tori, I don't get it. Like, this is mad. We're sitting there watching this and we're like, what's what's he doing? Um, like. People make mistakes, and instead of owning up to their mistakes, they double down to cover up, saying maybe we can cut a deal. 
And that's the problem. And I'm not talking about President Trump. President Trump has to rely on other people. He's not like a walking Google machine that can have access to all this information at the drop of a hat, right? He has to rely on other people to provide him the correct information, okay? Correct information. And unfortunately, let me show you how much of this information needs to be done with. So we have the border. Big deal right there. We have nuclear issues. Big deal right there. We've got space. Big deal right there. We have the suffocation of free speech within the United States and globally. Big deal right there. Healthcare issues. Big deal right there. Upcoming secondary lockdowns. What? We just got masks off. Yep. That's exactly what they do. They get you high. Oh, everything's back to normal. Look at us. And then there's just her whoops. Smack across the face, lock down in your house. We're shutting everything down. In the meantime, we also have all these food plants getting burned down, not working. People aren't getting loans for their soybeans. You know, suddenly nothing's coming through the northern border and nothing's coming through the southern border. In fact, they did that on purpose. So northern border, Union Pacific, Canadian Pacific are like, yeah, we're not doing this. So they're like, shit, we got to rely on Mexico. And remember what I told you about Mexico, about Beto and his wife? They own a big, she owns a big piece of land that has Mexican territory and U.S. territory, right? So it's getting even more complicated. We're going to go through it. So we've got that to worry about. Then we have the new IDs coming in, all your supermarkets. And I, I, with Millie Weaver, we did that report in March of 2020 where we were talking about real ID and how President Trump put that out as far as he could. And in the supermarket, I think uh, Millie had um, posted up there how she saw this machine at Walmart. And all of you are now starting to see them. And you're like, there's these barriers of electronic access. No, they're not thief machines. They're chip machines. What do you mean chips? You're not going to do chips. It's the mark of the beast. It's like, oh, because you're going to have a choice. See, this is where you won't be able to buy, sell, or do anything. But first, they got to do the cryptocurrency. That's another front. Look how the chips are stacked against you. Okay? Cryptocurrency. So then that way we can have a digital, and then we push in the chips. Right? QR code was just the first step. Let's get them comfortable with putting their shit on the phone. Right. So this is where it gets complicated. You've got your health, your ID, your sovereignty, your nation, no food, no water. Watch this. Watch that. And then you have elections. We're going to win. You got to go out in the primary. You got to win. And everyone. And the thing is, people are advising President Trump to endorse people that nobody wants to vote for. Why? Because they could say President Trump sucks on his record. Huh? sucks on his record. So what they're going to do is they're going to cut deals. Hey, get him elected since the machines are fixed and I'll endorse you or we'll do this or we'll do that. Ha ha ha. Fake bullshit. This is why we need to stop it. And we're going to do our very best to do that because you have 30 secretary of states that you saw 24 of them already have joined in on doing something you would never believe they would do, but they are. And then you have the attorney generals that are getting, yeah, we need to like deal with the border and stuff. But then you have some weird ass shit happening. Like, uh, what, 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 did, what did he, oh gosh, why, why is everything gone? It was like right here. Jeez. 
cheese, cheese, cheese. Now I have to go into my history again. It's like everything just disappeared. Let's go. History. So you know how everyone's like, oh, Greg Abbott's putting them on a, you know. Oh, it's there. Okay. I just didn't see it. Oh, we're putting them on a, a bus and we're going to drop them off in D.C. Really? Well, here's the here's the here's how people who understand game theory think, and this is how you can see how it's playing out. So, as you know, we have what do they call it? Logistics issues, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, all these ships—they're not coming. We've got problems at Long Beach, California, very specific, and um, these trains aren't bringing shit in because we're not helping Union Pacific. So they're getting attacked in California. So they're like, "Fuck this! We're not going to do that because." You know, our insurance is going to be high. Oh, yeah, we're not doing fertilizer. Oh, yeah, Canadian Pacific. Yeah, we're not trading anymore. And yeah, so, and we're not giving you a loan for your farm. So, oh, that beef processing facility just blew up. Oh, gosh darn it. Did that one burn down? Oh, yeah, that's right. So we have no food, right? No food. And then you have Abbott telling you, yeah, we're going strong on the border. You watch me. I'm going to put them on a bus and ship them to D.C. Hotty, 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 hotty. I'm the best. And then he goes and pulls shit like this. And you're like, wait a minute. Why? And I'll tell you why. He had no option. But he knew it was coming. Governor Greg Abbott announcing the end of extra inspections on commercial trucks coming into Texas from south of the border in Mexico. The governors of Mexican border states agreeing to step up security on their side of the border. We've been showing you all week the bottlenecks at ports of entry from El Paso all the way to Brownsville. Things now getting back to normal somewhat. But KVU's Thunby Varma tells us some still aren't happy with the backups and delay. With hordes of trucks stuck waiting in long lines at the border, full of goods like produce, Democratic candidate for governor Beto O'Rourke says truck inspections made prices of supplies go up since they couldn't all get through. Inflation and supply chain problems that we already had in Texas, that we already had across the country, made much worse here by our governor. But that financial pain was worth it, according to Governor Abbott. And a consequence of that is financial pain. And that financial pain is necessary to get the public to insist that their government leaders, such as the presidents of the two countries involved, Take the action that is needed to solve this problem. The problem, Governor Abbott says, is illegal immigration, drug smuggling, and human trafficking. But O'Rourke says inspections didn't help. These were completely unnecessary inspections that also did not allow the inspectors that Greg Abbott put on these bridges to even look inside of the cargo hold. So there was no ability to detect um, illegal drug trafficking or human smuggling. But Governor Abbott says this is the way to go. Is there was a change in the strategy, uh, and that is to inspect 100% of all the vehicles. Uh, and the answer is uh, yes, uh, if there is not a slowdown in illegal immigration, uh, there will be a re-implementation of 100% inspection of all commercial vehicles. For now, there won't be full inspections of every commercial truck, just regular random inspections. For KVU News, I'm Thunvi Verma. So they're just going to be doing random inspections on trucks that are bringing in people, food, goods, you know, because the North isn't working for us, right? So it's coming through the South. 
Huh, guess the railways, the short rail down in Texas is going berserk, right? Because we got Pelosi down on Long Beach with her container companies. You know, she owns container companies. I've read an article about that. You should look that up, right? So all of this is happening. How is How are we going to overcome this? How are we going to overcome this? Uh, it's a spiritual battle, they tell you. It's good. For, look at all this evil. And you're like, shit, that's a lot of evil. I can't do anything. What can I do? We've got election fraud, right? There, the, you wouldn't be able to vote if it counted. Okay, let's be straight, right? We have all of this that came out on the Bidens. Wait till you see Obama. We've got Clinton. We've got, you know, the fake Russia hoax. It's all pinging back to Obama, right? The military has completely sold out the people. The people that have taken oaths, it doesn't matter anymore, right? Right? It really doesn't. Right? It really doesn't. We got a society, uh, you know, where, where, where leaders are saying, if you talk about sex, to someone, right? Something. Oh yeah, you know this is a private part, and you're sitting in an office, and you're like, "Yo, this is a penis, this is a vagina," and you know boys like to do it up the butt, and you start talking about that, you're gonna get smacked with sexual harassment. You will be taken down. But if you go to kindergarten class and you start saying, "Boys sometimes like it up the butt, and it's like this, and this is a vagina, and this is what you could do," when you talk to about kids to it, it's not sexual harassment; it's fucking education. Right? This is how demented people are. This is how demented are. So you've got all this evil. You're fucked. You're, you're drowning in evil. You're dead. Your nose isn't even above water. How do you fix this? Right? How do you fix something you can't? Because <laughs> you need a million people working endlessly to stop all this. From the currency where they're going to take your money. From your health. They own you. They own your kids. Right? They already do. You own your house, you're paying rent, that's tax, right? You're still paying rent even though you bought a house, right? You got all that. Your kids are being conditioned. Adults are being conditioned. Everything on TV and radio is conditioning you. And they're giving you so much. Like, how do you know what the truth is? It's called facts, not version of facts like the fucking Supreme Court told me in Ohio. Version of facts. What the fuck is that? You've got corrupt judges. What do you do? <clears throat> which battle do you fight first? Child trafficking? <sighs> which is mostly experimentation. Your health, your sovereignty, your body, your money, your kids, your education, your job, your house. If a nuke's going to fall on your head, where do you go? Now, some people will be like, well, then we're all going to stop paying taxes. Yeah, they'll just round you up because there's like 100 million self-preservationists that will fuck shit up for you because self-preservation is key. It's all about them. Well, you know, I'm only doing my job. I just want my job. I got kids to feed. Right. So you can't you can't pick. Oh, do I fight the border? What about let's talk elections, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, <laughs> every single fucking state. Right. Which one? They're going after your president for J6, for election fraud, right? And he's fighting back on his own. Everything. They're suing people left and right. And they're just like, we're impervious. Ha ha. And they're throwing up middle fingers like, what are you going to do about it? Mark Elias has been heading point on all this shit. And they keep going. The guy that literally left the Hillary Clinton, he was caught. 
He was caught buffering FOIA requests for Hillary Clinton emails. And suddenly he created this company and they went and they bribed and blackmailed and fucked up everything they did in Maricopa. And then he leaves and he goes back to the government with a nice cushy position. Like, how does that even happen? Tori, what do we do? <laughs> well, first and foremost, you pray. But second, you focus on the war that you can actually win and the war that takes it all the fuck down. So just so we're clear. You must focus on the war that you can actually win. You cannot win the battles. Oh, but Tory, they're children. They are. But if you don't fight and target the war that will take it all down, then you fail because you're busy fighting this battle. Right now, everyone is so spread out, you know, and I hear it and I'm like cringing. It's a spiritual battle. The children. Great. That's a byproduct of the spiritual battle. The experimentation byproduct of the spiritual battle. The illegal migrants, the fact we don't have money, they're forcing us to regular byproducts of the actual battle. Put your finger on the damn battle. Where is it? Where is it? See, nobody can answer that, but we're going to answer that today. Okay. We're going to answer that today because I'm tired of, and I, I loathe having to spell things out. Because you would expect that people that thump these words be more precise. Unfortunately, people need direction. People need um, not coddling. What is going on? Is this like not working? Um, um, what is going on? Um, what happened? Let's see. Okay. Am I back on? Am I back on? Am I back on? Am I back on? Okay. I cannot see if I am back on. Can anyone? Let me see. I'll put a screen and see. if It's working. Okay. It's working. Um, but I don't know if people can see me. Can you guys see me? Can you post? Are you able to post? Um, test. Can you guys... Um, okay. Something went wrong. It says, okay, let me try this. Test. Are you kidding? Like, I can see it. <gasps> Service unavailable. Stop it. Okay, I'm going to end this feed and start it all over. Professors in Seville probably didn't see themselves as actual heretics. Instead, they were hedging their bets by reporting themselves when the consequences were low, rather than risking imprisonment or torture if someone else accused them later on. They were right to worry. Once the authorities arrested someone, accusations were often vague, so the accused didn't know the reasons for their arrest or the identity of their accuser. Victims were imprisoned for months or even years. Once arrested, their property was confiscated, often leaving their families on the street. Under these conditions, victims confessed to the most mundane forms of heresy, like hanging linen to dry on a Saturday. The Inquisition targeted different subsets of the population over time. In 1492, at the brutal Grand Inquisitor Tomás de Torquemada's urging, the monarchs issued a decree giving Spanish Jews four months to either convert to Christianity or leave the kingdom. Thousands were expelled, and those who stayed risked persecution. 
Converts to Christianity, known as conversos, weren't even safe because authorities suspected them of practicing Judaism in secret. The hatred directed at conversos was both religious and economic, as conversos made up a large portion of the upper middle class. The Inquisition eventually shifted its focus to the moriscos, converts to Christianity from Islam. In 1609, an edict passed forcing all moriscos to leave. An estimated 300,000 left. Those who remained became the Inquisition's next targets. The Inquisitors announced the punishments of those found guilty of heresy in public gatherings called auto de fe, or acts of faith. Hundreds of people gathered to watch the procession of sinners, mass, sermon, and finally the announcement of punishments. Most of the accused received punishments like imprisonment, exile, or having to wear a San Benito, a garment that marked them as a sinner. The worst punishment was relaxado en persona, a euphemism for burning at the stake. This punishment was relatively uncommon, reserved for unrepentant and relapsed heretics. Over 350 years after Queen Isabella started the Inquisition, her namesake, Queen Isabella II, formally ended it on July 15, 1834. The Spanish kingdom's dependence on the Catholic Church had isolated them, while the rest of Europe experienced the Enlightenment and embraced the separation of church and state. Historians still debate the number of people killed during the Inquisition. Some suggest over 30,000, but most estimate between 1 and 2,000. The consequences of the Inquisition, however, reach far beyond fatalities. In some places, an estimated one-third of prisoners were tortured. Hundreds of thousands of members of religious minorities were forced to leave their homes, and those who remained faced discrimination and economic hardship. Smaller inquisitions in Spanish colonial territories in the Americas, especially Mexico, carried their own tolls. Friends turned in friends, neighbors accused neighbors, and even family members reported each other of heresy. Under the Inquisition, people were condemned to live in fear and paranoia for centuries. Travel to Mexico to meet Sor Juana Inez de la, de la Cruz. Hmm, sounds like the Karens of today, doesn't it? The Inquisition. Because this is what we're going through. The globalist Inquisition. This is what we should coin our environment right now the globalist inquisition are you for globalism or against if you are against globalism then you are our enemy again weaponizing religion i say this because this is how multifaceted it is but it's not that difficult to see it it'll all come together so now you understand the trojan horse was more of an idol that then they left behind and they brought it in so that they can conquer right see we conquered you we took look we brought this god in and conquered Hmm. so now before we get to the judas video i'm going to read to you a letter but before i do i'm going to remind you why this letter is important And it is right here. I've played this before a few times. And look at the faces. Mr. Chair, and welcome, Mr. Brennan, to the committee. Thank all of you for being here. I joined Mr. Lobiando. It is really an honor to be able to meet with the intelligence community all over the world. We thank them for their work. My questions are regarding Iran 
in obtaining the nuclear weapon. I'd like to ask some questions about that. But before I do that, I'd like to ask a question of Director Brennan. When the White House conducted their armed drone strikes in North Africa, particularly in eastern Libya, prior to the attack on our mission in Benghazi on 9-1-1 last year, did the White House notify the State Department of the armed drone strikes before they were made? Uh, armed drone strikes in Libya? Um, I'm unknowing of, of such, and I would defer to the White House to uh, address your question. Were there any armed drone strikes in Northern Africa that were made by the White House? The White House doesn't have uh, a drone capability, responsibility, whatever. So, I, I, Did they have any directives toward having armed drone strikes in North Africa? Again, I don't know what it is specifically referring to, but uh, again, I would defer to the White House on whatever happened at that time. Well, you speak to the capability, the, the UAVs that were over flying over uh, Libya were military and were unarmed. And so were there any armed drone strikes that were made in North Africa prior to 911? In Libya? I'm asking in North Africa. I'm asking the, I'm asking Director Brennan, were there any armed drone strikes that were made by the United States in North Africa prior to 911? Well, we usually don't talk about any type of specific actions, but uh, I, again, I don't know what you could be referencing. I'm, I'm just wondering if the State Department was aware or if the military was aware or if the CIA was aware. And if we aren't going to talk about that, we aren't going to talk about that, but that's a, a question I'd like to know. Going back to Iran, what is our red line regarding the Iranian nuclear weapon development program? And I would ask Director Brennan, what is our, what is our red line? Uh, that clearly is a, a policy question. That's one of the things that the intelligence community is trying to make sure that policymakers are fully informed about developments inside of Iran and their uh, nuclear-related uh, pursuits. But regarding the, the nuclear weapon program and our intelligence uh, capability, again, we have a wonderful intelligence community, but we weren't aware of the, of the bombing in 1993 at the World Trade Center Tower. We weren't aware before 9-1-1 occurred in 2001. We weren't aware of the Arab Spring developments and we weren't aware of the attack on the mission in Benghazi. How do we have confidence that we will know when Iran has amassed the capability of developing a nuclear weapon? I ask that because the president said last month that it would take approximately a year for to develop a nuclear weapon once they had made that decision. Last week, we know that the current negotiations have gone without any breakthrough or any development. And so I'm very concerned about our intelligence capability of knowing with a high degree of certainty when Iran has either made the decision to develop nuclear weapons or has obtained nuclear weapons. I think this subject and I'm much, much better talked about in closed session. I, I would look forward to that, and I'd appreciate that. Could you comment on what is happening with, uh, we talk a lot about uranium development with Iran's nuclear program, but Iran is also building a heavy water reactor capable of producing plutonium. What's the status of Iran's heavy water reactor? Well, again, this would be a subject for closed session, I think. I look forward to Oh, wow. So my sound. So having seen that video, we will now proceed to a nice letter. 
This letter was written by Michelle Bachman, and um, she sent this letter to Keith Ellison. Now, this is quite important because this is before John Owen Brennan joined as CIA director. Dear Representative Ellison, thank you for your letter dated July 12, 2012. Mind you, this letter was sent on July 13th, 2012. I'm responding to the concerns your letter outlined as well as clarifying a few points that were misrepresented. As you know, on June 13th, 2012, the day she wrote the letter, members of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence myself included, and the House Judiciary Committee sent letters to the Inspector General of the Department of Defense, Department of State, Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. The purpose of these letters was to request a multi-department investigation into potential Muslim Brotherhood infiltration into the United States government. We find this is not only necessary, but beyond timely, considering that departments and agencies of the U.S. government, including but not limited to those departments to which these inspector general letters were sent, have in the past and continue to be advised by organizations and individuals that the U.S. government itself has identified in federal court as fronts for the International Muslim Brotherhood. That such a widespread assessment has not been performed yet is troubling and is the basis for genuine concern given the stark contrast between what the U.S. government says about these Muslim Brotherhood front groups and their continued association with these groups. I do note that the facts we presented in the Inspector General request letters are based on information presented by U.S. government officials in court documents, court evidence, correspondence, and briefings with Congress and public statements, in addition, known media reporting. These letters were far from sole source, as you maintain in your letter. Well, I can't speak on behalf of uh, the other signatories of those letters, nor am I able to get into the private discussions and documentation received by the various House committees represented by the signatures on these matters that motivated these letters to the various inspectors general. Out of respect to you, I am happy to respond to some of your concerns. Provide the sources you ask for, as well as clarify a few points that may have been misunderstood or misrepresented. Number one, brotherhood operatives within the U.S. government may have directly influenced the U.S. intelligence community's assessment of the Muslim Brotherhood as presented by the Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, in testimony before the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence on February 10, 2011. In the letter to the Inspector General of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the reference to the February 10, 2011 testimony before the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence is notable in that the Muslim Brotherhood is described by Director Copper as a largely secular unit. The fact that he made this statement is not in dispute. We cited his statement at that hearing in its entirety in the letter to the ODNI Inspector General. 
I have to note that both Representative Westmoreland and I were present at that hearing. Director Clapper was not speaking off the cuff, but was reading from a set of prepared briefing notes, which he looked at and apparently referred to in making that statement. His statement was so widely derided that the White House quickly moved to distance themselves from it, and Director Clapper even had to retract his statement. Director Clapper's statement was in response to a question by Representative Sue Merrick about information entered into evidence during the Holy Land Foundation trial, the largest terrorism finance trial in American history that specifically identified these U.S.-based Muslim Brotherhood Front organizations and their commitment to published agenda to and I quote, destroying Western civilization from within. Excerpt. According to the FBI and the Department of Justice, the Brotherhood is actually inside America. And I hold this up because it's from the 2008 Holy Land Foundation terrorist finance support trial evidence that was introduced by prosecutors titled Explanatory Memorandum. And under a section titled Understanding the Role of the Muslim Brotherhood in North America, the document says that the Brotherhood is engaged in, and I quote, a civilization jihadist process with all the word means. The Ikwan, the Brotherhood, must understand that their work in America is kind of a grand jihad in eliminating and destroying the Western civilization from within. And the last page of the memo lists the name of 29 organizations in the U.S. whom the author, who was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, claims are involved in this so-called civilization jihad process. So the danger of the Muslim Brotherhood is not just encouraging terrorism through their ideology, but also trying to take over governments. So everyone has to succumb and live under their ideology. The 9-11 Commission report says we must address ideologies that give rise to Islamic terrorism. And in fact, Director Clapper, at the conclusion of his response to Rep. Merrick's question, deferred to FBI Director Mueller to address the issue of Muslim Brotherhood in America, to which Director Mueller stated, I can say at the outset that elements of the Muslim Brotherhood, both here and overseas, have supported terrorism. To the extent that I can provide information, I would be happy to do so in closed session but it would be difficult to do it in open session. Considering that many U.S. government agencies, including some of those in the intelligence and law enforcement community, have engaged in outreach programs with organizations and their leaders identified by the U.S. government as Muslim Brotherhood members and fronts, it is entirely reasonable to ask exactly how Director Clapper arrived at the conclusion that the Muslim Brotherhood was a largely secular organization. It is also important to ask what advisory role that any of these Muslim Brotherhood Front organizations had played in the intelligence community's assessment as expressed in the briefing notes that Director Clapper was reading from, which stated that the Muslim Brotherhood was a largely secular organization. In light of the ongoing events in the Middle East and the rapid ascendancy of Muslim Brotherhood here, there is yet to be an assessment of how Director Clapper and the intelligence community got their analysis of the Muslim Brotherhood so inherently flawed, the implications of which could continue to live with for decades to come.
No matter example of the outworking, this intelligence analysis is the statement made during President Obama's 2011 Super Bowl halftime interview just days before Director Clapper made a statement where he said, with respect to the Muslim Brotherhood, they don't have majority support in Egypt. As we know from the Egyptian parliamentary and presidential elections this year, this, an, this analysis by our intelligence community was wrong. So why am I pointing this out? <clears throat> Weaponizing religion is not something unheard of. The Inquisition was a test of how to purge and get people to bend the knee. They didn't like the fact that the uh, Islam religion was very easy for them to control. Uh, Judaism, not easy to control. They already knew that. The Romans have already tried and failed. And therefore, they attempted it with Christianity, where you would tell on everyone and do and do and do. But in order to do it, you must bring in the Muslim portion of it. You must bring in the you can't talk about people that are a little bit more backwards or different than you because. Right. Just wait. There's more to this. Number two, quote, the mother, brother and deceased father of Huma Abedin, deputy chief of staff to secretary of state Hillary Clinton, are connected to the Muslim Brotherhood and that she, too, by extension, may be working on the organization's behalf. I mean, you would assume so. But, you know, the Saudis did pay Huma Abedin's tuition to go to Harvard. So it's kind of weird. So the response uh, to that, because he was upset, Keith Ellison was upset. You know, what better thing to do than to bring Brennan on as your CIA director just to quash all this shit and get rid of Michelle, right? But anyway, not once in the letter to the Inspector General of the Department of State, as you summarize, was it stated that by extension, Miss Aberdeen may be working on the organization's behalf. In fact, what we wrote was, the deputy chief of staff, whom Abedin has three family members, her late father, her mother, and her brother connected to the Muslim Brotherhood operatives and organizations. Her position provides her with routine access to the secretary and policymaking. Now, let me put a little parenthesis here. Huma Abedin's mom was the head of the women's the sisterhood, the Muslim sisterhood. And then we have the Muslim Brotherhood. They actually have offices in Washington, D.C. Do you want to take a wild guess where those offices are? I'll tell you where. Those offices are located in Eric Holder's law firm. You know, the one that was uh, hired to protect General Flynn, right? Before they started squealing because they had the packies down in the basement listening to everything. So again. That's where you have your Islamic intelligence, you know, ISI, Pakistan, right? You've got the Muslim Brotherhood and the Muslim Sisterhood sitting right there in that building. It's no big deal, right? <laughs> no big deal. It's just, it's just, you know, it's so, it's not real. This is an actual letter on congressional letterhead. So she continues. That her family members are connected to the Muslim Brotherhood has been reported and referenced widely in the Arab language media, including Al Hayat, the Arab Times, and Al Jazeera. Oh, by the way, you know how Al Jazeera owns like almost 
every mainstream media outlet. <laughs> I mean, they even own the Inform or they aid in paying the Inform of North Dakota, which is so weird. You'd be like, why would they have an interest in that shit? Anyway, let's continue. A 2002 law review article by, di by the director of the Center for Study for Islam and Christian-Muslim Relations states with respect to Ms. Abedin's father, Professor Said Z. Abedin took a different approach in dealing with the contemporary challenge to the traditional Islamic views. Trained in social science and being of Indian origin, Professor Abedin was the founder of the Institute of the Muslim Minority Affairs in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, an institution that had the quiet but active support of then General Secretary of Muslim World League, Dr. Umar Abdullah Nasif. As the Pew Forum notes, the Muslim World League has a long time history of being closely aligned and partnering with the Muslim Brotherhood. That Ms. Abedin is close confidant to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and that her position provides her with access to the secretary and puts her in a position to influence policymaking is not controversial. The concerns about the foreign influence of immediate family members is such a concern to the U.S. government that it includes these factors as potentially disqualifying conditions for obtaining security clearance, which undoubtedly Ms. Abedin has had to obtain to function in her position. For us to raise issues about a highly based U.S. government official with known immediate family connections to foreign extremist organizations is not a question of singling out Miss Abedin. In fact, these questions are raised by the U.S. government of anyone seeking a security clearance. Given the reasonable assumption that Ms. Abedin has a high-level security clearance as a member of the House Select Committee on Intelligence, I am particularly interested in exactly how, given what we know from the international media about Ms. Abedin's documented family connections with the extremist Muslim Brotherhood, was she able to avoid being disqualified for security clearance? If these known and documented family ties to the Muslim Brotherhood would not disqualify someone from a security clearance, what specifically is the standard to be disqualified on for foreign influence grounds? So th th this is really weird, isn't it? So this is very weird. They have given her a high-level security clearance when her parents are the founders of these extremist organizations. It is so bizarre. But do you guys remember how the media lost their shit when uh, President Trump's children were getting clearances and how they didn't want to give clearances? See, this is where you wonder who the fuck was next to President Trump, right? Without pulling this letter out, that I actually sent to the White House. Hey, they're talking shit. Why don't you just push this letter in the front? Let's talk about Aberdeen. Not on Twitter, not on there, but legally. No. Yet all those gatekeepers. So she got a clearance. But, you know, they were questioning President Trump. You see how that hypocrisy works? But let's get, let's get a little bit more further into this. Number three. The Organization of Islamic Cooperation, an international organization of 57 countries to which President George W. Bush created a special envoy position, is determined to impose Sharia worldwide and undermine the U.S. Constitution. 
that President George Bush created a position of an envoy to the Organization of Islamic Corporation is once again beyond dispute. As noted in the State Department's website, President Bush appointed Seda Cumber to the newly created position on February 27, 2008. President Obama later appointed Rashad Hussein to that same position on February 13, 2010. The agenda of the OIC, which is short for Organization of Islamic Cooperation, is equally non-controversial since they post their positions and statements in English about their site on their own website. In English, right? Concern about the OIC's agenda stems from the fact that it makes bona fide claims to begin the second largest intergovernmental organization in the world with membership of 56 states and the Palestinian Authority claims to represent the collective voice of the Muslim world, defines it governing domain as the entire ummah, the Muslim community, rests its authority in summits attended by heads of states. There are other reasons of concerns for the OIC's promotion of Sharia as part of a global agenda. The OIC identifies human rights strictly in terms of Sharia, Islamic law. Promulgated in 1990 on behalf of its member states, the Cairo Declaration on Human Rights in Islam was su subsequently served as a legal instrument to the United Nations in 1993. The human rights is derived exclusively from Sharia, according to the OIC, was made explicit in the final two articles of the declaration where it states in Article 24 that all rights and freedoms stipulated in this declaration are subject to Islamic Sharia. Well, Article 25 asserts that the Islamic Sharia is the only source of reference for the explanation or clarification of any of the articles in this declaration. Huh. I mean, how could you go wrong with that, right? It's all, look at all these rights. And then you put that line that says, uh, these rights are subject to Islamic Sharia. And then to explain what Islamic Sharia means, it says all of the articles in this declaration are based on Islamic Sharia. And it's like, okay. I guess so you're just writing words, and if they're based on it, then okay, sure. There are consequences to negotiating issues of human rights in the international arena and not knowing that the other side has defined human rights in a fundamentally different manner. This concern is not limited to the international arena. The OIC also makes jurisdictional claims over Muslims living in non-Muslim countries, which includes Muslims living in the United States. In the OIC charter, it states, the objectives of the organization of the Islamic conference shall be to safeguard the rights, dignity, and religious and cultural identity of Muslim communities and minorities in non-member states. The OIC takes this charge seriously and produces annual observatory reports that track issues it designates as Islamophobia. On the status of Muslims living in non-Muslim countries, the 2010 OIC observatory report stated that Muslims should not be attempted to be assimilated. Accommodation is the best strategy for integration. In other words, Muslims should not be allowed, Muslims should be allowed to live in non-Muslim states without having to necessarily obey their laws. You know, remember like the vaginal mutilation or the honor killing that happened in Texas and the guy got off, you know, that stuff. The situation is not helped by the fact that when meeting with Muslim entities from within the United States, the OIC tends to meet with groups known to be Muslim Brotherhood Front organizations. 
known to be dedicated to establishing an effective and stable Islamic movement led by the Muslim Brotherhood, which adopts Muslims. Causes domestically and globally, and presents a civilization alternative and supports the global Islamic state, wherever it is. For example, in 2007, the OIC General Secretary, El Meledin Ishanoglu, which is uh, Turkish, by the way, met with Nihad Awad, President of the Council of American Islamic Relations, CARE, right? We know them as CARE, to discuss cooperation on future projects. In 2010, and then again in 2011, the OIC organized Islam and Muslims in America conferences in Chicago that were promoted by CARE, with keynote speakers being the OIC General Secretary, along with senior leaders of Muslim Brotherhood fronts like ISNA. Both CARE and ISNA were identified as Muslim Brotherhood entities when designated as unindicted co-conspirators in the Holy Land Foundation case. The bylaws of the International Muslim Brotherhood state, the Muslim Brotherhood is an international Muslim body which seeks to establish Allah's law in the land by achieving the spiritual goals of Islam and true religion. It goes on to speak of the need to work on establishing the Islamic state, defend the Islamic nation against the eternal enemies. At least on its face, there seemed to be an ongoing relationship between foreign governing entity, the OIC, that claims jurisdiction over Muslims in non-Muslim lands and defines human rights as Sharia and advocates that Muslims not assimilate into cultures of non-Muslim countries. The OIC meets with known subversive front groups dedicated to the imposition of Islamic law and the subversion of host nation governments and societies. Given that the OIC defines human rights as Sharia for the Muslim world and CARE designates itself as a Muslim civil rights organization, couldn't indicate common commitment to implementation of Sharia law inside the United States, just as the Muslim Brotherhood's mission statement attests. Isn't that curious? Now, there are national security implications to allowing a foreign government entity to maintain ongoing relations with uh, domestic front groups. See, Here's where you see unfold that over the years, the Muslim Brotherhood has creeped in. And again, I am not biased to Muslims at all. I actually have enjoyed their call to prayers and mornings uh, when being in Muslim nations. I happen to have read the Quran cover to cover before. And despite the alterations that you can clearly see, uh, this is just being weaponized. Now, why? See, things, this was supposed to be a war. In 2016, they wanted Islamophobia to take hold. They want, because they knew that they can culminate them back. They can pull the reins on that shit. So they began the Islam fear mongering while Barack, a Muslim himself, with John Brennan, a Muslim himself, kind of pushing it in to create this division and to create a submission by other religions to them. Okay. Now, a few people bought into it. There was a Islamophobia thingamajig going on and everyone was going crazy. And, um, you know, it got a little bit out of hand because then the gays were like, yo, they throw us off roofs and it's like, yeah, it's not working. So they've kind of dialed it down just a little bit because it was all about getting in and then 
taking us out from within. And the plan is still there, but here's where the boomerang hits. See, this card has been played before, right? And so while they've made all these concessions and not allowed them to assimilate in non-Muslim nations, and that our nation has made so many concessions for all of them, this is how we win. Can you see it? I mean, wait a minute. You know what? While I wait, while I wait, while I wait, I want you to think about that. Because they did all this, because they allowed the infiltration, because they made all these success, because they made all these accommodations for all of them, because they turned the blind eye, because they let them in, because they took their money, because, 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 because they allow people to do honor killings, because they allow uh, all of this to happen. I want you to pay attention to what I'm telling you, and just think about it while I put this intermission speech that may help guide you. Because they did all this to help take away our rights, to make us bend the knee, to tell on each other, to accommodate them all, not accommodate the Jews, not accommodate the Christian, well, they kind of accommodate the Jews, but they super accommodate the Muslims. Now, see, they did all that because they were like, yeah, we're going to make them all look like Islamophobes and we're going to put them in that box, right? Right? Listen, right? So think, they've made all these accommodations. What's the war? How do you fight it? What is the actual war? Now let's, now let's set the record straight. There's no argument over the choice between peace and war, but there's only one guaranteed way you can have peace, and you can have it in the next second. Surrender. Admittedly, there's a risk in any course we follow other than this, but every lesson of history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement, and this is the specter our well-meaning liberal friends refuse to face, that their policy of accommodation is appeasement. And it gives no choice between peace and war, only between fight or surrender. If we continue to accommodate, continue to back and retreat, eventually we have to face the final demand, the ultimatum. And what then? When Nikita Khrushchev has told his people, he knows what our answer will be. He has told them that we are retreating under the pressure of the Cold War, and someday, when the time comes to deliver the final ultimatum, our surrender will be voluntary, because by that time, we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. He believes this because from our side he's heard voices pleading for peace at any price, or better rest than death, or as one commentator put it, he'd rather live on his knees than die on his feet. And therein lies the road to war, because those voices don't speak for the rest of us. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard around the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. 
and our honored dead who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay, there is a point beyond which they must not advance. Winston Churchill said the destiny of man is not measured by material complications. The great forces around the moon in the world, we learn their spirits, not animals. He said there's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. This is a war on religion. This is a war on the children. The good go with the sickness. This is a war on tradition. This is a war on religion. This is a war on the children. The good go with the sickness. This is a war. Oh, oh, oh. The water we live in through never reveal to you that they are so they've been killing you. They don't tell you what the hell you agree to. Sheep in the hurting you don't know who you you keep on receiving the follow. Mind is a hollow. You being caught up by coming and swallowing up everything that the media tell you without a question or a all of the sheep being slaughtered. They poison the water, removing the father and choosing your daughters. Ignoring blue collar, you're feeling the dollar and watching your sons and your daughters. Ain't got any honor if I'm being honest. I just ain't picking a side, but I'm not to ride for my freedom and die for my freedom and question the government lines. Not on my mind, so little time. Gotta think all of us needing a sign. The devil is high, ego and pride. Send them they sell, then they paying the price. God won't give you more than you can handle. Government should be dismantled. Every politician got a scam. Prepare for the war. We going up. This is a war on religion. This is a war on the children. They can't go with the sickness. This is a war on tradition. This is a war on religion. This is a war on the children. They can't go with the sickness. It's a war on all religions. See, don't get this twisted. Are you getting it now? They're not after just the Christians. They're after the Muslims and the Jews. See, the new world order cannot have order if there is God. The only God should be science. And what they have done, do you really think that John Owen Brennan is a true Muslim? Get the fuck out of here. What about Keith Ellison? Get the fuck out of here. They're all pretending so that they can radicalize them to do their bidding and then eradicate them all. See, Saudi Arabia figured that out. Mm -hmm. They figured out that they hijacked their religion to infiltrate all others so they can bring them down and their plan did not work. Therefore, indeed, this is a war on religion. This is exactly it. They use a religion that they could weaponize, right? Because they don't want any religion. You cannot have a communist society with religion. You cannot have them have religion. This is why the Chinese do not want people to have any faith unless it's a Christian faith that they tell them they can have. Their book, right? Their book. So again, this isn't which religion is better and which is right. This is a spiritual battle, not just uh, for the Christians, but also for those 
that are Muslim and those that are Jewish and Dan, 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 Dan. So what they did was they wanted to put religion versus religion because they weaponized them. And they made so many concessions that they didn't even see the Trojan horse. If you come into our nation where we are the melting pot of the world, where we have all religion, all faiths, you know, we even have some really made up ones too, you know, religions to furniture, like you should look some crazy shit up on TikTok. But again, this is a war on religion. Regardless of who your God is, it is a war on religion. Regardless. See, but here's where the Trojan horse came in. While they tried to pit us against each other and bend the knee, bend the knee, bend the knee, because they can formulate with the Muslim Brotherhood. And this is why the Turks are not involved in Arabian discussions. Okay? They are not considered Arabs. They're considered fanatics. Let's keep that in mind. Right? It's just a war on God. It's not your only religion, but, but it comes back to the fact that in the United States, as they tried to pit religion against religion, no concessions for the Christians, because that would mean this is a Christian nation. See? And this is why they gave that misnomer. A lot of people want to say, our nation was founded on Christianity. Well, hold on a second. It was founded on the Christian values. Lots of our founding fathers, some were Protestants, some were Catholic, some were this, some were atheists. But one thing they agreed was that the Christian values were good. The Christian values that were there allowed to, for people to flourish correctly together, openly with love, regardless. And so here we are at the point that the Muslim Brotherhood was really the Trojan horse. You want to weaponize religion? You want to make people bow down to one so you can annihilate it in another breath? Because look, pay attention. The New World Order has attacked every single nation that is of Islamic faith, aside from Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Every other one they've controlled in some shape or form. Yet, for some reason, they've been pushing that religion that has been weaponized and was taught to many that they're radicals in the Western regions. So this is the Trojan horse by the Almighty, however you may see God, to show the world that, yes, unity can exist, but it must be fair. And the problem that they had was pushing aside the Christians in the nation that erroneously believes that it is a Christian nation. We are not a Christian nation. We are a nation that allows for every single person that lives and thrives and contributes to our society to look the way they want, you know, act the way they want as long as it doesn't commit a crime or impose on others and pray however they like.
So if we are a society that allows for these freedoms, the only way to collapse it is to force another on. And this is where they messed up. See, the narrative that this was a Christian nation began in the late 1800s post Abraham Lincoln. And again, this helps us win for God in general, not your God, their God, my God, God, one God, one, end of story. So this nation, which was put together by atheists and, and, and Protestants and, and, and Lutherans and whatever you want to call them, right? They used Christian values, not Christianity, Christian values. And then they created the separation of church and state and made no concessions for Christians. Because they already told them, well, you know, since this nation was founded on Christianity, we can't give you any passes. Because then that would mean we're favoring your religion. But we're going to give a shit ton of passes to all the others. Okay, so fuck you. And you're like, wait a minute. My nation isn't a Christian nation. It was based on Christ-like values. Because there were a lot of atheists that put this together. And so, and so, and so. The only difference that we have now is that Everybody gets a pass, but Christians. So if the Christians were to point at the Muslim, yeah, it's all your fault. You see, you fall into that trap and then you're an Islamophobe and then they need to shut you down and then make Christian extremists and all this stuff, right? They're using, they're using, they use the Muslim radicalization that they had already tested centuries ago to Bring in the fall of this nation by infiltrating and saying, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And Saudi Arabia saw and saw this shit. And they're like, wait a minute. It's kind of like if I was Kintaji, I'd be like, wait a minute. So you're nominating me just because I'm black and a woman. That's really fucked up. Saudis are like, yo, just because we're Muslims, you're going to fucking take our culture and our religion and weaponize that shit. I'm gonna fuck you up. I want you guys to pay attention. This is exactly what it is. It is a war on religion in general. It is not just against, in our nation right now, the Christians are being put in the corner. But it's in general. Because once they win the Christians and then they go sacrifice, you think the Muslims that won't respect? Well, you know, it depends, right? You have to think how many of them have been radicalized and how many of them are true to Islam, right? And many of you say, well, their religion says, but... They've been raised here and they have assimilated most of them, not the radicalized ones that still think that it's a real thing, that this is going to be a Muslim nation, which it's not. It's totally not. It's not. Russia, when it was a USSR that has been a Christian nation, Orthodox nation forever, they used to go into tunnels and talk in their house about religion because you can't have communism with God. You cannot have a God if you're a slave. You cannot have belief. You cannot say that there's something better. You cannot say that someone else gives you right other than your masters. So again, the old trick here was, oh, so you guys want to do this? All right. We'll play along and then we'll pull the rug right out from under you. But the way you can do this is only by showing all the concessions that they've made for all others. And the actual persecution is against the Christians.
Because see, the Christians, the one thing about Christians is that you can't put them in a corner. They try to shut up the Christians talking about Jesus. And then because they couldn't shut it up, they're like, all right, let's take control of this. Let's 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 eliminate some stuff from this book. Let's uh let's add to this story here. Uh and okay, that looks good. Yeah, not good enough. People are still talking. You know what? We're going to make a Pope. You can't do that. Well, we're going to make a Pope, but, but Christ is real. Yeah, but we need someone in charge on earth. We can't just have this ethereal being and we're just going to add to it. You see, communism always seeks control, but in order to have control, the first covenant of, of any communist society, any communist nation or regime that wishes to take power is to create socialism. Now, to, to invoke socialism, you have to have a monopoly. So what is the most intangible and most important monopoly you must have? And that is that of your thoughts. So they have degraded all. You think Muslims are okay with transgender kids being taught about sex? I know a lot of you are going to be like, but Muhammad. But again, grain of salt, all things change. I'm just saying. You think they're okay with that? You Will you see a Muslim girl run around with like 20 piercings in her face and say that she identifies as furniture? Fuck no, you won't. You won't see a Jewish girl doing that shit either, right? Right? And let me talk about my black Christians, right? How do you think they feel about all this crazy ass shit? They don't like it either. They're not with it. That's not their culture because Christianity is part of their culture. See, and how you win this war is by identifying the actual victims in our nation right now. And it's not the Muslims and it's not the Jews and it's not the Buddhists. It's the Christians and the majority, majority of people within the United States are actually of, of, of Christian faith. That includes black Americans. Almost 90% of black Americans are Christian. And they go to church all the time. Every single time. You know, I'm just saying. This is a war on religion. Again, blanket religion. But in order to win the war, you have to identify within our nation, within our borders, who's the one taking the flack? Who is the one being attacked? Who is the one being excluded, put in the corner, not identified? Blacks, Latinos, and every other shade that you can be, right? Majority are Christian. So the majority is being targeted. Because they have been feared to stay and cower and say, oh, you, you need this. I will. Oh, how dare you? They're not all crazy. No, they're not. But they're weaponizing that. So again, again, this is the actual war. It's not just a war. Globally, it is a war on religion. They've been trying to subdue your beliefs like nobody's business. Well, science can explain that. And God Fauci is going to help you with this Fauci ouchie. And don't listen about, you know, snake venom and, and bats and, you know, giving you all this. This is a war on God. And as Americans, right, hot, red-blooded, freedom-loving Americans, right, we need to stand as firm as possible 
to ensure that we have religious freedoms because that is what is being attacked. Because once you take God out of people's mind, it's over. Religion is the target. And right now, you can easily identify that it is the Christian community that is being targeted. So therefore, where are all my Christians? Not just to defend their religions, because that's the problem that we're going to have. We're going to have the Bible thumpers coming out. Oh, it's the damn Muslims inviting and shit. No, man, they're going to take them out too. Don't worry about it. The minute, <laughs> that's what they want. They want the Christians to be radicalized. They want them to do that. <clears throat> Your churches are all sellouts. They got paid. Guarantee you, if you look at the CARES Act, that they got some funds right there to implement masks and talk about vaccines. Want to make a bet? Why don't you go check? Now, bottom line is we have defend, we as Americans defend all Americans. I don't care what you, even if you're a Satanist, I will fight for your right to pray there, whatever you want to do, right? It's your God given right to choose. You have free will. But when I say, you know, that that case is going to be the case, we need to ensure that we don't call it just it is an attack on Christianity because it's the majority and this is how they take out all the religions. And the Saudis figured that out. Saudis paid for all that education for Huma. They all ushered it in. You think this happened like this? They knew. And they allowed it. This was the Trojan horse. The weapon that they sought, they allowed. I mean, question this. Why would the U.S. government be embracing a religion that apparently is so radical that they can't control? And this is why they're bombing the shit out of their nation. So they're bombing the shit out of nations that actually have Islam as a foundation of their nation. But then they're also bringing them over here and changing rules and shit. Because, and even though they're saying, yeah, we're going to come over and we're going to take over. It's going to be a da-da-da jihad. They've weaponized. They've totally brainwashed them. And that's the thing. They've realized what was going on. Now, one can say, well, what if they flip on us and they take over? Well, you know, they're not going to go very far. The UN isn't just the United States. That's when they come in. So again, uh, these globalists, they have no God, right? Demons. They are attacking religion regardless of how you see God. They are just attacking religion. And this is what we need to understand. The only thing that helps us fight this war is to focus on the fact that within our borders, Christians are the ones persecuted. And it's not just about the, the vaccine is one argument, right? Because if we don't win this argument, in a couple of years, we're going to be back here talking about the chip. Oh. You think that's funny? That's where it's going to get crazy. But by then, the ship has fucking sailed. Because Christianity is the only one that talks about the mark of the beast. And so the other religions won't be down with that shit. So right now, what we need to ensure is that we fight for religious freedoms, no matter what they are. No matter what they are. I don't care what you believe your God is. You have that religious freedom. That is it. That is all. 
That is all because we have weaponized the Muslim religion since the day it appeared. They have used them as a tool. Now, who all sat in that meeting is a story for another time. But one thing people need to understand is what church is located in Antarctica? Shit. I want to take a wild guess. Huh. Wild guess, wild guess, wild guess. So again, focusing on the real war. It's not just when they say spiritual war, this is a spiritual war. Point it out, man. They've used the Muslim religion within our nation for almost over a decade to infiltrate because that's how they weaponized it. I mean, they were smart in the 70s. They knew what the fuck they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing. They went down to Iran. They, they did it all. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly how to wrap them up. They knew. They knew. And so they used them. I, I am so angry for those that believe in their faith and their Quran. Right? Could you imagine if, if you found out that your Christian religion was being used as a weapon to penetrate another nation so you can overthrow it? And, and because that nation was very specific to overthrow, because if that falls, then the rest of the world falls, you'd be pissed. Yeah. And so was the prince. Right? And so was his dad. Right? They just played along one a little bit. You remember, they only have 33 years of oil left. Okay? Let's be straight. Pay attention. In our nation, within our borders right now, the only religion that is currently under fire and has always been under fire is the Christian religion. Because unfortunately, people are under the assumption that this is a Christian nation. It was founded on Christian values. It is not a Christian nation. And therefore, if we can all get behind the fact that we all, all, all of us are entitled to equal religious rights, we win. We win. If we do not, we will be back here fighting the same battle and the outcome will not be as favorable because this is where people are really going to put their foot down. And this is where real heads will roll and people will be, you know, inundated with martyrism. And we're going to have people flogging themselves. They've done this before to Christianity, flogging themselves from Germany down to, you know, Egypt. They do this. They've weaponized Christianity before. One, with the tell on your neighbors. And two, where, you know, people were flogging themselves, right? Walking around, right? You think that that's not going to happen? And the reason this nation was even founded was why? Because there were no religious freedoms in Europe. They came here because they were being persecuted for not having the right religion wherever they lived. So the foundations of this nation were created with values that were Christian, but without identifying a specific religion. The Christian values were the most vanilla. Would I say that? They oozed love. They oozed respect. They oozed, uh, you know, openness and embracing people. Jesus was a Jew. The three wise kings were what? What predated Islam before they changed it. I see. You see, this is how it is. We don't pay attention to the little details. 
do not weaponize your religion by calling other religions bad or not the right one. That is not your judgment to call. You are not God. You are not the creator. And a lot of people get really upset when I say this. You are not. And you're, and, and I can tell you something, God would be very upset if you sat there and condemned someone because you don't like their religion. That's the one thing that Jesus did was embraced every single person, lepers, false prophets, devil worshipers, witchcraft people, wizards, warlocks, you name it, right? So it, it, it upsets me that people talk about other religions and they talk down about them, but that is what they feel they want to do. That is the covenant of the Christian faith is to allow another to exercise their free will. Now, we, as the people, and those that identify as Christian should understand that. And therefore, when it comes down to it, we should hope and we should pray that the message is religious freedom for all. But we will be pointing out the discrepancies on how accommodations are made to everyone but Christians. We must continue the notion of why this nation was founded, religious persecution. And right now, there is active religious persecution. And how they're ostracizing people is by saying, well, this is a Christian nation. We can't make concessions for you. Again, think about it. Remember the Christian baker that said he didn't want to bake cakes for lesbians, right? I mean... That was really rough. I mean, but it's his shop. I don't agree with him. I'm being dead honest, but he does have the right to say, I don't want to make it for you. He does. He does. And one would say, well, that was his, you know, he could do it. He could, but his intention was wrong because he claimed that his God would punish people like that. You cannot speak for God because God created them too, right? So his punishment was to go broke right? And go through court. And even though he won his religious freedom, it pinged back on him because his intention was wrong. Again, intention was wrong. Intention was wrong. Intention was wrong. Your intentions, if you're a true Christian, right? Should be that of love and mercy and that you do not judge. That is it. Love and mercy. That is it. So the real war is the reason that this nation was created. Religious persecution. This is a war on religion. Every single one. Any religion you can think of is under attack. They may not be actively attacking the Jews they may not be actively attacking the Muslims. They may not be actively attacking the Pastafarians, the Rastafarians, the Buddhists, the Hindus. May not be actively attacking them right now in our nation. But they are actively attacking Christians. And therefore, the one thing that we should have is all the other religions back us. And we must convey that. But see, the thing is, for the past 10 years, everyone has been labeled an Islamophobe because of people like Ilhan Omar, who did it on purpose. 
She was radicalized and she was pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. She changed the rules of Congress. Now she can wear a cover when normally there were no covers. Concessions again, you see? So God loves all. And kind of like that that scene in my mind that plays over from uh, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Magician's Nephew. You know, when he was, when he went to the lion, Aslan, to ask to save his mom, right? He would see just how big and majestic he was, but he would be focusing on like the claws, like the feet, how big and powerful that he could tear him up. He was massive, right? And that's how God is. God can just, doesn't even have to blink his eye and he could get rid of you, right? That's the power, right? Because he just invented shit in his mind. So God can do anything he wants and he has the power to eradicate the whole planet with the snap of his finger. Doesn't even have to snap fingers. He could just think about it and it's done, right? So that's scary, the power. So that scene of the lion and the boy where the boy is asking, I want to save my mom, shows his intimidation to the power that that lion had, the power that God has intimidates. But then when he looked up into his eyes, all he saw was love and compassion. And that is exactly how any creator would be. So attacking one religion in our nation at any given time, whatever that religion may be, is an attack on all religions. And that, my friends, is the actual spiritual war. They are eliminating science. They are eliminating, sorry, they're eliminating God to replace it with science. This is why your exemptions don't count because science says different. Your beliefs don't count because science says different. This doesn't count because science says different. Why do you believe in God? Science tells you this. Why do you believe that? Science tells you that. See, this is the war. This is the ultimate war. Ah, but the children, you win this war, you win it all. And it's game over. The minute you have religious freedom, which you already do on paper, on paper, you have it, but no one's honoring it. So you have to find the right case at the right time with the right person to defend, to make sure that right is upheld, right? Because I'm telling you, lockdowns are coming again. And this time, if we don't have our foot in the door, damn, we're going to have to try to break down a wall. And that's going to be hard. And it's going to be scary. It's going to be terrible. We need to ensure that we have religious freedoms. Religious freedom above all. Because your religion is actually your thought. See, thought crimes aren't like, I think she looks stupid. Or I don't don't like Adam Schiff. Why don't you like, he gives me the heebie-jeebies. He's such a demon. Ooh, that's black. Oh, you shouldn't be saying that. Your faith emulates your, it is your thought. It's your spirit. They're trying to kill that. They're trying to take over your very essence of thought and beliefs and spirit. So this is 
the actual war. So when someone says it's a spiritual war, say, yes, we don't have religious freedoms. Yeah, now we do. See, the Muslims, yeah, okay. Do Christians have any? The Christians have uh, 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 Christmas. That's a federal holiday. Uh, uh, Easter, that's a federal holiday. Uh, uh, There you go. This is the only reason we still have Easter vacation. It's just to appease and say, look, you've got that. No, 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 no. That's not a religious accommodation. See, my kid's not in school right now. Why? Because for me, it's Holy Thursday, right? She's going to observe that. She's going to go to church. She's going to listen to liturgy. She's going to read, right? And she's going to observe that because that is her right in this nation. She doesn't have to do the whole Hallmark thing and the past they give us. Christmas is a consumer holiday. It has nothing to do. Nothing to do with Christianity anymore. It's all consumer. They're starting Christmas in July, man. It's all consumer. And Easter's almost gone. Peeps, that's all you get. Peeps and chocolate eggs. And then it's gone. Again, this is the war. The war is exactly that. And how do you understand it better? By understanding the true story of Judas. I say many times, I've sat down, I've broken bread with my Judas. But did you know who Judas really was? All you knew is this guy that hung himself because, you know, he betrayed Jesus. Well, Many of us know who will betray us, and many of us will sit there and still break bread with him in always hopes of redemption. But here are some fun facts you didn't know about Judas. Judas, perhaps one of the most reviled names in history. I mean, the very mention of him brings to mind images of evil and betrayal. This is the man who caused the death of Jesus. But for most people, this is basically all that they know about Judas, his final act. But this week, I want to share with you eight things you almost certainly did not know about Judas. And if you stick around, you will. Okay, so here's the first item on the list of things you might not know about Judas, and that is that Judas cast out demons. You know, when we think of Judas, we often think of a man inspired by Satan, right? Consumed by demons. But the truth is, Judas actually spent part of his time with Jesus casting out demons. In Luke's gospel, it tells us that Jesus did this. It says, when Jesus called the 12 together, He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, some might argue that it's possible that Judas never did this, right? Maybe he just went out with the other 11 and while they cast out demons, he lacked that ability. But what's significant is that scripture never says that, right? There's more than enough opportunity to villainize Judas, but they don't. And more importantly, that idea just doesn't make sense with what the scripture says, right? It says that Jesus gave them the power and authority to drive out demons, to cure diseases, and to heal the sick. Why give Judas authority if he's not going to use it, right? The truth is, it's highly likely that while Judas fell prey to evil in the end, he spent part of his ministry eradicating it. The second thing you might know is that Judas shouldn't have been in charge of the money. Scripture makes it pretty clear that Judas was in charge of the money for the disciples. 
But when you look closely, you see that he wasn't really the logical choice, right? Matthew was a tax collector. He was actually very familiar with money. If anyone would have been the perfect accountant for the group, it would have been him. But perhaps that's the very reason why Jesus didn't choose Matthew, right? He knew that Matthew was susceptible to the power of money. And so instead, Judas was put in charge of the finances. Unfortunately, we find that he too was prey to the power of money. John tells us that Judas was in charge of the disciples' money, and he often stole for himself. And ultimately, Judas sold out Jesus to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. Third thing you might not know is that Judas's name actually means praise God. You know, in Jewish culture, names had meanings, right? While today, people may select a name because it sounds nice or it's popular at the time, at the time of Jesus, People selected a name that they believed described that child or the circumstances into which that child was born. And this is clearly the case in Judas's name. While we refer to him as Judas, Judas's name is actually a variation of the Hebrew name Judah, which means let God be praised. Now, perhaps his parents had waited a long time to have children, or maybe the circumstances around Judas's birth were especially harrowing, or maybe... His parents were just simply very grateful for their son. But either way, every time someone said the name of Judas, they were praising God while addressing the one who would ultimately betray God. Fourth thing, Judas was an outsider among the disciples. The surname given to Judas is Iscariot, right? This is how he was distinguished from the other men with the name of Judas. In fact, one of the other disciples actually had the name of Judas. And the term Iscariot is actually a reference to Judas's hometown. Iscariot is a combination of two words, ish, which means man, and karioth, which is the name of the town that Judah was from. What's unique about this town, though, is that it means that Judas, as far as we know, was the only disciple who wasn't from the region of Galilee. So while many, if not all of the other disciples would have grown up knowing one another, Judas was the outsider. He was excluded. So it leads us to the question, was he excluded by the other disciples? Did they make him to feel less loved or less welcome? I mean, nothing in scripture suggests this, and it's hard to imagine that Jesus would allow it. But in the end, we may never truly know. Number five, he quit his job to follow Jesus. Being known as the man who betrayed Jesus for money, you wouldn't expect that Judas once gave up his livelihood to follow Jesus. But whenever someone would follow a rabbi, they would actually leave everything in order to follow him, right? They'd leave their family, their job, their home, everything. I mean, think about that moment that Peter and Andrew are in their boat when Jesus approaches. They're in the boat fishing because this is their livelihood, right? Most likely their father was a fisherman and his father before him since trades were passed down from father to son. But look at what happens when Jesus approaches. Notice how they get out of the boat and just leave, right? They leave everything behind to follow him. And Judas would have done the same thing. Scripture doesn't tell us what his past career was or if he had a family. But we know that once he became a disciple of Jesus, he leaves it all behind. The sixth thing you might not know is that no one seems to have suspected Judas. You know, in the scripture, there are significant moments when Jesus predicts that someone will betray him. And in one passage, he actually makes it quite clear that this person will be Judas. 
But what's interesting to note is that none of the other disciples seem to suspect this, right? Never in the gospels do we see the disciples suggest that Judas will betray Jesus. I mean, even when Jesus makes the not so subtle hint that Judas is the one, none of the other disciples seem to catch on. It's as if they couldn't possibly believe this. I mean, even reflecting back as they write the gospels, they don't even hint at it. Apparently only Judas knew what was going on inside of his mind. And what he did was truly a shock to everyone. Number seven is that Judas gives credibility to the gospels. Hold on. Now I want to take it for a second. Let's pretend Judas is not a man. Just gonna, just going to, to have you bear with me for a second. Pretend that Judas is not a man. So Judas cast out demons. That was one of the things that you learned. United States, when formed, casted out metaphorical demons, meaning that everyone could be free, took away all those shackles and chains that evil brings, right? Right? And then um, it says that Judas, Judas uh, shouldn't have handled the money. Well, the United States, after its formation, handled the money because the United States actually became the controlling power of money, the dollar, the fiat currency, trade. I want you to, 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 to think of it before you see the other things. Just, just think. So he shouldn't have handled the money because he would skim off the top. Judah means of God, right? Um, in God's will or to do. Just, just pay attention, right? And this is what our founding father said. As our creator gave us inalienable rights, we should do so, right? He was an outsider. So is the United States, completely separate from all the nations. From all nations, completely separate. Nobody knows, you know, we, we are the ones betraying the creator. Think of it, Judah. We create this land to praise God and allow for free will and inalienable rights given to people. Right? This is how we created it. And we evolved, right? In charge of the money, we had severe authority, right? Over the rest of the world right now. And we are the outsider. And apparently, Judas, to become, you know, a disciple or for the USA to even exist, people left behind a lot of shit to come this way. It is I, I, showing you metaphorically, right? And then no one would suspect that the United States would ever be the reason that there would be a downfall in the whole world. Yes, I'm trying to show you now that you are kind of getting it, how, you know, outsider shouldn't have controlled the money because you were skimming off the top. You were created 
because you left everything to create this place where it's authority and 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 power and freedom for all. Careful. Now let's go to the next portion. Think of it. Judas adds credibility. Hmm? The Gospels were written with a very specific purpose. Tell people the story of Jesus so that they might surrender their lives to him as their Lord and their Savior. The story of Jesus is meant to convince people's minds and to convict their hearts, which makes the inclusion of Judas incredibly strange. I mean, if you're trying to convince the world to believe that a man died and rose from the dead and that he's the Savior of the world, one detail that you would probably not want to include is that one of his closest followers betrayed him to his death. Right? You'd worry that people might say that if this guy didn't believe in him, why should I believe in him? And yet the Gospels include it anyways. They include it because it happened, just as they include the rest of the stories, because they happened. Finally, number eight on a list of things that you may not believe or know about Judas is that Jesus still loved Judas. When Judas brings the soldiers to arrest Jesus, Jesus calls Judas friend. He doesn't say, hey, Judas, or even ignore him. He calls him friend. And what's so easy to forget is that Jesus spent three years with Judas. They were together every single day. He loved him as he loved all the other disciples. And just as a parent can't stop loving their child, no matter how awful their child might be or what their child might do, Jesus didn't stop loving Judas. He didn't see him as a demonic figure like most people do today. He saw him as a friend who made a terrible decision and who would take his own life out of grief over that choice. I mean, I think that the last point there is a lesson that's important for us all to remember. That there was no limit to Jesus's love. He still loved the man who hurt him more than anyone else ever would. Which means that there is no limit to Jesus's love for you. Right? You might think, that you've done things that are too bad for God to love, that you've done too much for God to forgive. But if Jesus loved Judas, then there's no reason to believe that he does not also love you. But there's another lesson in here too, which is that if Jesus can forgive Judas, who is there that you need to forgive? I mean, think about what Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. He says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. There's this expectation of forgiveness, right? And it makes sense because if Jesus can forgive the man who betrayed him to death, if he can forgive us all for all that we've done, then there shouldn't be anything holding us back from offering that same grace to others and receiving that grace from Jesus himself. Um, now, where are we at? I want you guys to think. <sighs> The scriptures may be telling you a story that you just can't see. Maybe telling you a story that you just can't see. If you need to, listen to it again. Maybe telling you a story that you can't see. Or maybe you're seeing it now. See, every single apostle... There are so many that interpret things, but if you take a step back in a 40,000 foot view, eliminate everything you've been taught and just listen to the words and listen to the story and listen to the character as described and depicted, it kind of tells you exactly if Judas was a nation, 
that would be the United States of America. If you were, if Judas was a nation, it would be that of the United States of America. If Judas was a nation, it would be the United States of America. And if you need to hear it again, do so. And this is the point. Do you betray the very foundations of your nation, which is religious persecution? Why did they crucify Jesus? Free speech, religious persecution. Called him a heretic. He was dangerous. The idea was dangerous. Here we are once again at the same battle as a nation and not as the son of God, but the children. And Judas, when he took his life, he just didn't know what to do. He was so sorry. So sorry that he had that happen. He was like, I'm so sorry. And he said, you know what? I'm just going to kill myself. I mean, it's over. I did it for 30 pieces of silver. Oh, how many years were they together? Three years. Wait, uh, he created the earth in, in uh, the, the world in seven days, but it wasn't really seven days, or it could have been seven days. Three years sometimes in the Bible is seen as 300 years. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty interesting. Even though everyone thinks that the birth of this nation happened in 1776 when those documents were signed, when did it actually happen is the question. When did it actually create itself? So he was very sorry and guilty. And he disposed of the pieces of silver, which were 30 pieces, for the three years that he had known Jesus. It was pretty much nothing. And felt so sorry that he hung himself and ended it. He offed himself, right? So this is the point that do we actually feel that, that we are at this point, that it's a point of no return? What must we betray? Because this is what, if, if Judas was a nation, we are betraying the very foundation of that nation. We are betraying the nation that he loves. Spiritual warfare. This is a war on religion, not just Christians, all religions. The Christians are just the first, the only ones they need to take out in the U.S. The others they can control. It's the first ones they need to take out. The first one. That's why the Hasidic Jews aren't taking the vaccine. They were the doctors handing that, those freaking vax cards out, right? Think. This is the actual war in our nation right now. The spiritual battle is that of religious freedoms. That is it. Oh, but the children, that falls under it. The minute you have that battle won, you can defeat it all. You can focus on the children and maybe you could put a Band-Aid on it, grab a few bad people, right? You're not going to stop it because you still don't have power because they've taken that away from you. And while we think, oh, well, other religions have power, they really don't. It was all planned. They don't. They don't. So this is what we need to do. Put aside the ideas you have of other religions. Put aside your big shield of a Bible and how your religion's better than everybody else's. Right? Put aside all of it. Put aside all of it. And then focus on just religion. And that's where we go. And this is why I said that case is important. 
because this is where everyone needs to rally behind where we're pointing out the Christians have no rights in the United States of America, only other religions. Therefore, we should all have equal rights. And you cannot, in a court of law, dispute that with evidence. This is what we need to fight, that all of us deserve inalienable right to free thought. And if you want to be an atheist, a spiritual guru, or anything, you should have that right in this nation. You should have that right. So when you hear spiritual battle, say, yeah, this is a war on religion. No, it's about the children. Yeah, that's included too. Okay. That's totally included. Okay. Totally included. The minute you have religious freedom, it's game over. Game over. So you'll see that evolve for all of you, no matter what your religion is, pray because he's watching and we need everyone to have faith in God, however they see it with no bias, just love. We need faith and we need equal rights to all. That's the religious war that we're at right now. The fact that we have no religious freedom. Don't let the concessions they made for others fool you. They separate us from our neighbors and they call it social distancing. It's actually a bigger plan. It's called social conditioning. They took away our privacy. There's always someone listening. The elections planning riots for the citizens. The government has always lied. It's history repeating. But the problem is the schools dumb you down so you believe them. If you try to speak the truth inside a tweet, then they delete it. Hold administration Satanists who claim they praise in Jesus. Every year there's a new name for enemies that we're facing. It's Al-Qaeda, then ISIS, and now American patriots. Who would have thought those who love the country the most? Will be hated on by folks who call America home Both political parties are equally just as evil They've been working for themselves, don't give a damn about the people Black, white, yellow, brown, humanity needs you Cause united we stand, divided they will defeat you The man on the news says the problem is me I'm just a small town boy with big American dreams <laughs>